and let's get started. Thank you guys for joining today. Um, my name is Rochelle Muckle. I am the Exhibitions Operations Administrator here at AMT, and we are very happy to host our attendee webinar to you guys. Hope that you guys are all geared up and ramped up and registered for IMTS 2016. So thank you for joining us today. We are going to be talking about the achieving the unfair, unfair advantage with our marketing gunslinger, Mr. Steve Miller. How are you doing today, Mr. Steve? Well, like I said, I'm stressed. Yes. <laughs> Today, it's one of those it's one of those days that we all have, you know, where it's sort of like you got all this mountain of stuff happening all at the same time, and and uh, um, and that's okay, you know, it's just just part of, part of the deal. Yes, it definitely is. Can definitely understand that. Um, so, just wanted to have a few announcements. Um, we launched our conference reg about two weeks ago, so. Please um, check that out when you get a chance. Our registration is up. Um, we just sent out a insider um, not too long ago, so um, definitely check those out too. We put all the up-and-coming things um, that we're having for our show within the insiders. And that is pretty much it for our attendees. That's it for the attendees. Now, now there might be some exhibitors on this too, which is which is. Perfectly fine, yeah. Because you know these are just really the broad, the kind of the the, the broad uh, webinars that we do every month uh, yeah. for every for everybody. So uh, um, so I'm glad if you, it doesn't matter whether you're an exhibitor or an attendee, we're happy that you are here. If you are an attendee, I hope you're all registered. Yep, and if you you're know? we hope you're registered as well. <laughs> check out your eKit and also check out um, our eKit Wisdom newsletter that we send out every two weeks. Yep. I'm so. Turn it over to you, Steve. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks, Rochelle, and uh, great to see everybody. Thank you for joining me again. I'm uh, once again in a hotel room, uh, not uh, uh, actually not too far away from uh, the offices, but that's okay. I'm I'm here working uh, 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 somewhere else this afternoon, and uh, got to take care of uh, paying the bills to take care of that kid I've got. That's an expensive young daughter. Ha <laughs> ha, and a wife too. But. Uh, um, the impetus for this program was that uh, last month I signed a new book contract uh, to write a book that's titled Uncopyable, How to Create an Unfair Advantage Over Your uh, Competition. And uh, after I signed that and started you know, working on the outline with uh, my editor and, and everything, I thought, oh, you know what, I haven't really talked about this specific topic with you guys in all this time. I mean, everything that I've been doing and everything that we talk about certainly is designed to help you become, you know, much more effective marketers, uh, much more successful, and certainly uh, every, everything can lead towards uh, um, an unfair advantage. But uh, but I want to just kind of talk to you a little bit, give you the high the high altitude view of uh, the outline of what this is about. It's it's basically out the the outline of my book, but uh, uh, um, I think it's something that that you're going to find uh, very useful. Uh, to, to help separate you uh, from the crowd. Now, uh, you will notice down below me that there is a chat box. Uh, you're welcome to get in there and say hello to uh, everybody, say where you're from, uh, say how the weather is or something like that. You're welcome to ask me questions. I will, I'll do my best to uh, monitor those as we go. If I miss something, don't worry, I will try. I will scroll back and uh, look for them at the end when I do have uh, time uh, for Q&A. Uh, and as always, we're recording this presentation and uh, will be posted. might take a couple extra days since I'm on the road to get it up quickly, but uh, uh, we'll get it up as soon as we possibly can, and you will be able to download all the visuals as well. So when, when, um, when I'm dealing with uh, corporate clients and uh, trade associations, uh, I'm always trying to help my clients to set up you know, what, is, what I call is the unfair advantage or what I call is uncopyable superiority. And the reason why is because it's because today, you know, things are, uh, it's, it's so easy to get commoditized in today's world. So if I, like, like for example, if I were to ask you, ask you this question, uh, do you suffer ongoing pressure to lower your prices 
and your margins. I mean, if you do, you know, you, you, you know, raise your hand if you if you uh, feel like participating in uh, saying, saying something there. Uh, and uh, and it's quite all right if you don't want to raise your hand. I uh, don't want to do that. But but the vast majority of the corporate clients, especially the corporate clients that I'm dealing with, uh, they are under a lot of price pressure by their uh, customers, by their new prospects, to uh, if any, you know, to lower their prices or certainly. Uh, put pressure on their margins as as well, and uh, so when you get down to the idea of separating yourself from the competition, a big reason why you want to separate yourself from the competition is to get, is to uh, get away from that price pressure. Uh, it's not only to separate yourself, make yourself appear to be superior in some way, uh, to or to actually be superior in some way to the competition. But uh, but all but but a big part of that is making sure that you can still get the margins that you want uh, from uh, fr from the marketplace that makes makes it fair. So when you think about what separates you from the competition, a lot of the, when I ask people, the, the the typical answer and the historical answer is uh, broken down into one of three parts. It's that uh, either the uh, uh, we are better than our competition in our with the product that we have. Uh, we offer a superior service, customer service to our competition, uh, or we offer lower, better pricing than our competition. Now, because of commodity, because of technology, the you know a, a lot of industries. In fact, most industries are now. It's difficult to separate yourself from the crowd just simply by products, uh, because. Uh, you know the old days of having um, products that would uh, you could design a product, uh, you could build a product and patent a product and get it to market, and it would take a long time for the competition to catch up with you because uh, you might have something superior to them in the product. But because of technology nowadays, it's almost impossible to develop a product that isn't uh, a product or a service that isn't copied. You know, just like that. Uh, in the marketplace, it's very, very difficult. And when you are in, you know, when when you do have a problem with uh, commoditization uh, and with your products, then you try to start saying, okay, well, what else can we do to separate ourselves? Well, uh, in most cases, it's very, very difficult to separate ourselves by price because uh, you're you're constantly. It doesn't matter what your price is. You're constantly going to be pushed to uh, uh, to lower your prices anyway. So. What most companies will say that they are doing is they are separating themselves uh, by service. Now, here's what I hear when I ask people, why do customers do business with you? Essentially, here's the statement that I get. It's that our customers do business with us because we have the best people delivering the best customer service in the industry. And I would venture to say that most people on this call would say that that's what separates you from your competition as well. The problem with that statement is that, for the most part, that statement is actually very vague. You know, you're not specifically talking about. Uh, I mean, you say you have the best people, and you say you have the best customer service, but but the word or the phrase customer service is actually a vague generality because it, because everybody can have a very different definition of what that means in their minds, uh, and. But the uh, but the biggest problem of all is that because of commoditization, everybody is saying that, right? Even your competition is saying that. When you go on, to, you know, I, you know, when I survey audiences before a speech and I ask them what separates you, they say customer service. You know, our people separate us, and the fact is that that's what everybody says um, today, and as a result. Even though we say that, and we might even believe that, well, we still have pressure to lower our prices. Okay, so uh, and and why is that? Why is that? Well, I talked about commoditization. Okay, but even when we say that we are separating ourselves from the competition with our customer service, it's difficult for us to explain to the customers and the prospects exactly what that means. You know, we make the promise to them that they're going to get a, they're going to get customer service, but then our competition goes in and talks to them, makes the exact same promise. So from the customer's perspective, essentially what they're saying is, well, 
you know what, if you look like a duck and you walk like a duck and you talk like a duck, well, then you're a duck. And I don't say that, uh, uh, and I, and I don't say that uh, to uh, uh, insult anybody or anything like that. But from the customer's perspective, if they're not getting any, if you're talking about product, price, and service, and all they see is the same, the same, the same, then everybody looks and acts the same. And uh, interestingly enough, not too long ago, in 2014, there was a, a survey done uh, by, the, by Roland Berger uh, uh, Company and uh, uh, um, in conjunction with the International Controller Association because they wanted to find out, okay, how much has commoditization uh, impacted their world? Uh, and, you know, controllers are in all different industries. So, and they found that 63% of, of, of the companies in that, you know, in that survey said that they were already facing commoditization. And, uh, you know, then when asked, well, you know, are you doing something to get away from that? Are you doing something to uh, break out of that commoditization uh, 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 place? 54% of them said that they really had not taken sufficient action to, to break out of that. Now, why is that? Why, why is that the case? Well, I think there are basically two reasons why this is the case. And the two reasons are pretty simple. One is heuristics, and one is industry orthodoxy. And the two kind of go together in, in the discussion. And, and here's an example of what I mean by, by the heuristics and the industry orthodoxy. See, um, I'm in a Hyatt hotel right now. And in my uh, bathroom right now, there is a curved shower rod. Now, it was only a few years ago, what was it, maybe two or three years ago, that we started to see curved shower rods in the bathrooms of the hotels. And I would venture to say that the vast majority of the hotel bathrooms now in all the different chains have curved shower rods. It is, it, but the first time we saw one of those curved shower rods, we were a little bit like, like hey, what the heck is this? And, and, and then we wrote, oh, OK, well, this kind of makes sense and stuff. But who was the first one to have the, the curved shower rod? I believe it was the Weston Hotels, because they had also been the ones who, uh, uh, you know, trying to create this heavenly experience that they they have uh, been touting for, for many, many years. It started with the heavenly bed, which, of course, was rapidly and very, very quickly copied by other chains. I don't. I think it's Sheraton. It's somebody who has the sleep number bed. Then somebody else has the super fluffy bed, you know. And then somebody else. Somebody else has the two the, the two sides change bed and raise and lower and stuff like that. And it and it, it, it you know becomes it, it becomes the amenity wars is what it becomes. Uh, but they are easily copyable. There 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 are certainly benefits. Um, you know, that are being added to, you know, to uh, the experience of customers like us, but they are benefits that are easy to copy. And that's where, that's where the orthodoxy and the heuristics come in, is because for the most part, you know, we, our, our heuristics, in other words, the way we see the world, the way we uh, have opinions, the way we, our perceptions, everything like that, you know, are, are uh, molded by us growing up, uh, uh, by our families, by our friends, by the schools, by the books we read, the people we meet, everything like that is all molding the heuristics. Now, once, once you get into adulthood um, and you get out of the mode of being with a lot of different types of people, because you know, if you remember back to your, your friends in high school, well, the, 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 your friends in high school uh, probably went off to, uh, you know, a you know, hundred different directions in different types of jobs and, and uh, services uh, in, in all different industries, maybe all around the world, okay? And, maybe, and for the most part, you probably don't keep in contact with them. But, it, but back then, that was your world there. So you see, now, since you've gone into adulthood, since we've gone into adulthood, you know, we've kind of entered into a, a world of its own. So, so for those of us that are uh, on this uh, call right now, it's the manufacturing industry. And so we, for the most part, live, eat, and breathe the manufacturing industry. We might have some other hobbies on the outside. We might have some other uh, um, friends. But most, for the most part, the people that we are in contact with, our exposure to uh, publications, our exposure to events, conferences, 
things like that, are all in the manufacturing world. And so therefore, the our heuristics are being molded you know, very, uh, in, a, in, in a very high uh, uh, impact way by the manufacturing world. And, and that world is, is very different from somebody else's world. So somebody else's world might be that they are a captain of a cruise ship. And, uh, and they grew up in that industry. And, and, uh, you know, and all of their friends are people that are in the cruise ship industry. And they work with these people. And they read cruise ship magazines, you know, trade magazines. And they attend those types of, of, of conferences. And so that is their world. And their heuristics are based on uh, the exposure that they have in there. And there are things going on in their world that are very, very unusual would be very, very unusual to us if we went and started to experience it. And we, we all understand that, OK? But heuristics cause, causes us to sort of see things in the same way as everybody else in our industry. And as a result, also, you'll find in almost every industry, in fact, I have never found an exception to this uh, in, in every industry, that went because of our heuristics and because of the way we are looking into, into the world, uh, you know, we tend to look at each other a lot, right? We tend, we, uh, as you know, competitors are studying competitors. You know, we say, all right, well, what's, you know, what's ABC company doing uh, this week to, uh, to grow their business? Oh, they're doing, they're doing something a little bit different over there. Okay, well, we can too, you know. They have a curved shower rod. All right, we can have a curved shower rod as well. Oh, they're having a heavenly bed, but we can, we can have another, another type of bed that's, that's the same as that. And because of these heuristics and this industry orthodoxy, what really happens in our world is that competition does not really breed innovation. Competition breeds conformity. And, uh, uh, you know, and so that's what happens. And, that, and now that technology has, has taken such a uh, a, a critical role in our world to where it, things are moving so fast and so fast and making things so easy to copy that when we are just looking at each other and we're living in our world and looking at our heuristics, then we are, you know, you, we are all kind of commoditizing in that world. It to totally makes sense. So we need to break out of that. If we're going to separate ourselves from the competition, we need to break away from that commoditization and be able to do something that makes us different in a unique, useful, relevant, uh, um, uh, important, high-value way. Right? It makes perfect sense. The problem is, is that just because it makes sense does not mean that it's easy to do. So what's the answer? I mean, we've seen over the you know over the years they talk about things like, well, you want you know you want to develop uh, loyal customers. That's what you want to do. You want to develop loyal customers because loyal customers will stay with you much, much longer. Uh, um, but then the question is, well, how do you develop loyal customers? Well, that's the, that's the tough one, right? Or they say, okay, well, another thing that we can do is we can uh, follow the net promoter score, right, where we survey all of our customers out there and we say, uh, would you recommend? Uh, our company, and you take all the nines and tens, you total them up, and you subtract the ones and twos, and that gives you your net promoter score. And then you can brag to everybody about your net promoter score, and uh, and that supposedly separates you from the crowd. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Okay, or you know, evangelists. You know, not not just they're not just loyal to you, but they're actually aggressively out there promoting you and referring you. And these things are all easier said than done. And I'm not denying that it's difficult to do. But I think that these are also kind of vague, vague statements that are hard to put your arms around and say, all right, how, you know, how do we really do this stuff? How do we really accomplish this stuff? And, and, and so what I've, what, what I've come up with, uh, the concept that I've come up with that I work with with my clients that I'm writing about in my book, is something that's a little bit different that, that I think that, uh, uh, or it's a different perspective of it that I think that we can work on and, and use, and you can try to uh, um, embrace this to help you separate yourself. And, the, and, and, and here's the thing. Before somebody can become loyal to you, before somebody can say that, yes, I will recommend you to somebody else, before somebody else can become an evangelist 
with you, something else has to happen first. And that something else is attachment. It's, the, it's attachment to you, to your company. Because once they're attached, once they have a personal, professional, you know, attachment to you, then they, then they become loyal. Then they become promoters. Then they become evangelists. And the type of attachment I'm talking about is something that, that you know, we see all the time in the uh, entertainment industry, in the uh, sporting uh, industry. Uh, those, those, those are perfect, perfect examples. Because here you go, you got like this, like here's Matthew McConaughey, who's obviously at some kind of um, uh, event, and, and you know, the fans are screaming, and, you know, she wants to, to hug him, and she's so excited and things like that. And, but the fact is, is that she's the customer. She's the customer. She's the one who's paying the money to go to the movies that Matthew McConaughey makes. You know, and he is gaining on that. But here, but here clearly, she is attached. She really, really likes Matthew McConaughey, probably has a huge crush on him. And, uh, and so, therefore, she is now going to be loyal. She is going to be a, a, an evangelist as, as a result of that. But, she's, but she has a high attachment you know, with him. And we see this with sports, sporting stars, you know, with teams, Seattle Seahawks. You can't go around Seattle without seeing you know, 12th man or anything like that. Uh, and, and those are things that, that you know, help to reinforce the attachment that the fans have with the teams. I think there are two uh, components to developing uh, strong attachment uh, with your marketplace and getting them, or I should say, getting them to have strong attachment with you, not, not you with them, but them with you. And the first one is value. Now, value, it's, you, know, here, you know, here's a fuzzy word, okay, but I want to try to help uh, explain it a little bit here. Uh, but uh, value is, you know, we say, oh, value is kind of in the eyes of the holder, uh, but the, you know, or you could say that uh, price is what people pay for a product, value is what they get from, from the product. And we, we've all heard those things. But, how, but, but there's something that's really, really important to understand. One of my, one of my uh, pet phrases that I'm known for with all my clients, and that is, where value is clear, the decision is easy. And so that, that, you know, that, that when somebody gets it, when they get that you have a high, high value for them, then they get that, and they're going to want to do more business with you. But how do you make that happen? Well, it's perception of value. You know, when they define value as high, it's, they're saying, oh, they have a perception that they are getting a seriously high value from you. Uh, but, but what is that? How do they know? What is that compared to? Well, it's all based on their expectations uh, from you, from your competition, from the marketplace, what, their ex, uh, you, what the types of, of experiences they've had in the past that start to, uh, you know, start to determine their level of expectation from you. So, uh, so if, and if you can manage that expectation, then you can develop a perception of value in their minds that will uh, uh, make them want to continue to do business with you. So there, you know, and so there are, as, as, you know, in the three parts, obviously, there's the product expectation, there's a service expectation, there's a price expectation. So you think about those standard three parts um, that we've always paid attention to, right? Well, product expectation, well, fine. If, if it's a commodity out there, well, then obviously the ante to be in the game is that you have to have a product that is more than good enough, you know, for the marketplace. You cannot come out, you know, we can no longer come out with low quality products and expect to be successful in the marketplace. It used to be that you could say, all right, you know, product, service, price, that uh, it used to be that you would, you, uh, sort of in economics and in business schools, they would say, okay, pick two of these that you're going to excel at. Uh, and if you pick two, then it's, it's not really possible to do all three. You know, you could have a really high-quality product. This is back in the days of there were differences between the products, right? Differences between, so there were different levels of products. And to a certain extent, obviously, there still are. But for the most part, people still expect a product to have good quality. But you, it used to be you could say, all right, we're going we're gonna to create the best in the, in the business. We're going to have high, high, high-quality high uh, product. And... Uh, you know, and then we're going to have really, really good service to back that up. Really high, high, high level 
uh, customer service to back that up. Well, if you're going to have those two, well, you can't then go out and say, and we're going to be the cheapest on the market. So, so in other words, you had to uh, have, you know, had to, had to have two, but probably wouldn't be able to have 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 the, the third one. Well, that's no longer true. That's just no longer true today. You know, nowadays nowadays people completely expect that they get all all of these, right? That these are all part of the value expectation. And so when you combine them, uh, then you get their value expectation. And that's what you want, and that's what you're looking at managing. So you got you have a quality product, you have a, a product that for the most part has to be the ante in the game. You have a level of service expectation now. Are you able to plus that a little bit? What is, what is the expected level of, of, of service uh, in the marketplace. Uh, you could look at, you could think of retail, for example, and think of uh, department stores and compare, you know, Macy's compartment, uh, department store with Nordstrom's department store. I mean, going into, I can tell you very simply that, you know, going into Nordstrom, I have a high level of expectation that the service is going to be, going to be good, right? My expectation is much, much higher. Uh, and um, and going into Macy's, my expectation is that the service is going to be lower, right? It's not going to be nearly as good as it, as it is at, at uh, Nordstrom. But in return for that, I also think, okay, the prices at Macy's should be lower than the prices at Nordstrom because I'm paying for that expectation level, okay? And so the value expectation to begin with is right there. It's, it's, uh, it's based on what is their expectation of your product plus what is their expectation of your service and plus what is their expectation of your price. That's the value expectation. So when you've got so if you can manage the expectations, don't let the customer manage the expectations. You manage the expectations in all three of those areas where you when you promise something to them, you're saying, here's the quality, here's 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 what you can expect from our product. Here is exactly what you can expect from our service, and here obviously is exactly what you can expect from our pricing. And 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 so then you are now managing their expectations. But here's what happens when it comes to expectations. Because every contact, every, every connection that you have with your customers then uh, affects those expectations. Because when they get a delivery of your product, you know, does the product match their expectations? You know, when, they get, when, they, when they have a problem they need to call up uh, for service, does it match their expectations? If it does match their expectations, then uh, then they are now matching the value expectation that they have with you, and so therefore they they go, okay, that's cool. These were my expectations, and they and they matched it. Now, what if you are able to exceed those expectations in one? Uh, in, in at least one of those areas, if you were able to plus it just a little bit to where, and, and as simple, I mean, as simple as things can uh, can be, like, for example, I was uh, preparing for a talk in the automotive aftermarket world to a, dis a large distributor, and uh, a distributor association, I should say, and um, uh, major uh, distributors across the U.S. were members of this association, and so I did some interviews with some of them. And one of them said, "said Yeah, we want to. We, you know, our products are set. The products that we provide through our distributorship are set. There's nothing we can do about the quality of the products or the or the, the expectations of those products. They're already set. So what we have to rely on is is kind of ramping up the service a little bit." And and he said, "Yeah." He said, "You know," he said, "My wife called our bank the other day, and a person answered the phone. That's amazing." And he was blown away. Because his wife was blown away, and he said, "That's what we're going to start doing. We're going to go. We're going to start answering our phones." I said, "You mean you're going to go back to answering your phones, right? Isn't that what you used to do? Didn't you used to answer your phones? But then, what did technology do? Technology took over by by you know having voicemail and, and things like that. So, but to him, that was something that he could say, "All right," because all the other distributors that he competes with are all still on voicemail. So he was going to raise the bar a little bit by by delivering beyond just a little bit. And so when you can do that, well, then that then, then you are now enhancing their perception of that value that you're delivering to them. 
Uh, now, on the flip side, of course, let's say that uh, somebody does call up and they say, you know, and their expectation is that they're going to be able to uh, get a, uh, you know, they've been told that all problems will be solved within 24 hours or something like that. Uh, and you know, and I've I've heard this, right? And uh, and we've all heard this. And then uh, and then something will happen, and the problem does not get solved in 24 hours. And the and the customer is upset, you know, or the customer feels ignored or something like that. Well, then that level that that level of expectation of value that they have going into that contact is then diminished. And so now their perception of value from whoever that supplier is is now going down, all right? And what we always want to do is we always want to be pushing it up, right? We don't want to be a duck because if all we do is continue to maintain that same value expectation with them that is matchable by everybody else, then to them we're just another duck. And so we're always pushing, always looking for ways to plus one or more things in, in of, of the product service and price, and for the most part, it's service. But we've got to get much, much more specific, and we have to look, like I say, look for ways to plus that. So how do we look for ways to plus that? What are some of the, what, what can we do to plus that part of the equation? Because you know, can we make the product better? Well, if you can make the product better, but if it's copyable, if it's just a simple improvement then if it's copyable, it will still get copied very, very quickly. Can the price go down much farther? Well, why would you want to keep chasing cheap prices? You don't want to chase cheap prices. You want to create a value expectation to where they're willing to pay you know, a, the right price for it or a higher price for it. So the second component of the attachment uh, it, that really enhances that value expectation you know, is the customer experience. Now we've talked about this many, many times before, and and uh, you know the customer experience. Uh, um, it's something we've all heard about. But again, how do you deliver an experience that is a beyond the value expectations they have of product, price, and 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 service? Well, think about it this way: a richly imprinted experience wants to be remembered. All right. A richly imprinted experience wants to be remembered. A richly imprinted experience wants to be repeated. And equally important, a richly imprinted experience wants to be shared. Wants to be shared. So let's think about let's think about what that should should include. So a richly imprinted experience. Well, what are the components of that? There are three components. All right. Number one is your branding proposition. You know, what is your branding proposition? What promise are you making to the to the to the marketplace that uh, that 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 you can deliver that nobody else can deliver? What is your promise? Most companies, you know, it's, it's, you know, we're not talking about the brand, all right? We're not talking about the logo or anything like that. I'm talking about your promise to the marketplace. Uh, you know, can you can you tell them that you're going to do something that nobody else can do? And if you can then that becomes an uncopyable advantage. All right? That's the branding proposition number one. Then what can you also add to that and to the experience that they have with you that is a tangible advantage to, uh, to your relationship with them? And what can you add that are intangible relationships? Let's talk about these three separately. The branding proposition, like I said, what is your promise to the marketplace? If you are promising them great customer service, that's still a vague generality. So if you're going to promise you know, great customer service, you have, you have to say, we're going to deliver the best customer service you've ever had. And here's how we define that. It could be that, that oh, we answer our phone on the, you know, by the fourth ring. Uh, you know, we deliver our, you know, when you place an order with us, your delivery will be with you, you know, will be, uh, you know, at your doorstep within 24 hours. You know, it's like the Amazon.com thing now, you know, where they're saying, you know, they're managing stuff like this by saying, okay, would you like it delivered today? Would you like it delivered today? No. I ordered something on Amazon uh, recently. Yes, I'm an Amazon Prime customer, uh, and I ordered, I ordered it on a Saturday. I think I fully expected 
you know, with Prime, I said, oh, I'll have it on Tuesday. That's really, really cool. I got it on Sunday. I got it the next day. So, see, and, and they're making that promise now. They're saying, okay, we are going to, you know, you know, do you want it today? Do you want it tomorrow? And if the answer is yes, okay, they are now planting the expectation in my mind of what I'm going to get. And if, we, if I say today, and it arrives today, that's, that's unbelievable. You know, and, you're, and you know, what they're saying is they're raising the bar for competition. They're raising the bar for the competition because they're saying, you know, we can deliver it faster, faster, faster than anybody else. And that's their promise. That's their promise to me. Uh, do you have, you know, what is your personality of, of your company? What is the personality? Is your, you know, think Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You think of them, you think of fun, quirky, kind of odd type of stuff. You think of, you, when, when you think of IBM, you don't think of, you know, fun, quirky, you know, odd type of stuff. You, you, you think of very, very, you know, um, you know white shirt, regiment tie, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, and I don't mean too serious. I just mean maybe more professional acting and something like that. What is the personality that you have in, in, your, in your company? Uh, do you have souvenirs for people? Souvenirs. This is cool stuff. Let me give you. Let me give you the best example on the planet. You probably already figure out who this is, but that does all three: promise, personality, and souvenirs. Yeah, it's Disney. Disney World. Their promise is that they are the happiest place on earth. Now, you know, are, is everybody that goes through Disney World uh, walking around with great big smiles on their face? No, they're not. You see a lot of grumpy, unhappy people that are walking around there. But none of them are the cast members who are working there. The people who are working there are, you know, are bending over backwards to make to be as uh, as good-natured, as happy as possible. They want to do everything they can to help you have a happy experience. You know, does that do they have personality? It's yes. It's coming out their ears. Get it? They got personality coming out their ears. All over, you know, everything that you think about with, with Disney is it's going to be creative, it's going to be fun, uh, you know, it's, and it's fun for all different ages, okay? Do they have souvenirs? <laughs> how, may, how, much, how many souvenirs do you have at home from Disney, all right? Perfect example. Now, Disney is essentially a theme, I mean, it, it's essentially an amusement park. Disney World is essentially an amusement park, but they don't call themselves amusement park they call themselves a theme park and even though other theme parks you know other other places call themselves theme parks when you think about magic mountain when you think about six flags when you, when you know when you think about uh, universal studios okay you do not think of them in the same vein that you think about disney it's a, disney has a very very strong uh, hold on the marketplace and on the attachment the people, the customers have with them, to the point that they are, they have now announced they're going to do dynamic pricing, dynamic tickets, uh, you know, to uh, to get into the parks, and then on the high, super high demand days, uh, the prices are going to go up substantially, substantially. I think I heard that some, some like the the you know the regular price to get into a park is like ninety five dollars a day, and uh, on high high volume days. The dynamic pricing is going to push it up to something like $125. So that, and, and that's because of the attachment that their customer base has with them. They are loyal because they are attached to them. Uh, the tangible experience that I, that I was talking about, uh, um, one of the things in the tangible experience is what can you do to make people feel like they are, you know, the, you are the club all right, that you are the club that everybody wants to be a member of. Uh, um, are you are you providing them with proprietary, proprietary information that they cannot get anywhere else? What are you doing to extend the value beyond just the deliverable? I'll give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. All right, the club proprietary information extends beyond the deliverable. All right, Harley Davidson. All right. This is a club. You know, the, the motorcycles are the souvenirs, right? That's really what they are. The motorcycles are the souvenirs. The community is the club. It's, a, it's that personal attachment. It's that joining them, going out there for rides. And if you look at this picture, 
you look at all these all all these men and women that are that are standing in this picture, and uh, um, you know the first first perspective is, wow, I don't want to you know I don't want to be out on the road by myself when these guys come roaring by. Well, they're all accountants. That's what they are. They're lawyers. They're accountants. You know, they're engineers. You know, they're floor managers. You know, that's what they are. But they get to dress up in black leather, ride through small towns, and have people be afraid of them. All right? They do it together because that's the club, and uh, uh, which which takes it beyond the deliverable. Right? That's exactly right. That's what that is. How the Mickey Mouse Club. You know, go back to Disney. They always. They're such a great example. Right? Those of us that were uh, um, old enough to have joined the Mickey Mouse Club when we were kids, you know, or, or you know, and, or, or or followed the the Mouseketeers even later on, uh, you know, when the Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and those those guys were part of it. Um, uh, I don't know if they still have them. I assume they do, okay, but I don't have kids anymore, so uh, so I assume they do. However, however, Disney has not forgotten, you know, that kids grow up, kids grow up. And so now, you may not know this. Did you know that they have a club for adults? It's called D23. You can search it on, you can Google it, D23. I think you can actually just go to d23.com. You can join the club. I think it's $75 a year. You get souvenirs. You get a, this glossy magazine. You get the opportunity to attend a D23 Expo every year. Uh, I understand the last one that they had uh, had something like 15,000 people attend it. And when you get the magazine, you get inside info on the new movies or the new rides or new projects that Disney has going with it. You get, you know, when you go to the convention, you get to meet the stars of their movies and hang out and you get, and you get back, uh, you know, back stories. You get in, uh, interviews with the people who designed the rides or interviews with people who hung out with Walt Disney. Uh, and you get these, you, you, you get this inside information. And when you get that inside information, that proprietary information, it makes you part of the club. And that's a very, very tangible experience. There's also online, Fabletics, you know, for women who, uh, uh, you know, are into this, the athleisure, I think is what they call it now, um, you know, clothing. Uh, it's not just, it's not just yoga pants anymore. It's yoga pants with design and, you know, outfits and things like that. Well, Kate, Kate Hudson, co-founded uh, an online uh, service called Fabletics, where you can, you can, every month they come out with new outfits. Every single month they come out with new outfits that you, as a member of the club, can get. If you're not a member of the club, you, you can't buy these new things. And you join Fabletics, and you, you can, like there it says, you get your first outfit, uh, for $25, and then I think every month after that it's $49.95, and you get a new outfit every single month because you're part of the club. You know how many? And 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 uh, I saw saw a story recently that said that uh, in two years they have become a $200 million company just by online sales. Uh, you know, talk about proprietary information. JD Power at one time was just a regular research company that would go out and try to get companies to hire them to do research for them. They flipped it around. They decided they were going to do something different. They said, hey, we're going to go do the research ourselves. We're going to develop proprietary information for, uh, uh, that we're going to determine who is the best customer service in all of these different industries. And so they own the proprietary information, and then they sell it from there, you know, I talk about um, uh, I talk about the intangible experience, and uh, you know, again, the club, the the personality of the club, the, the being part of the club. If you can establish a club, uh, you know, to where they feel like they are part of the tribe, that is a very very intangible experience. But a big thing that is that is also uh, huge to do for your customers and your prospects especially your customers, long-term customers, is uh, recognition and uh, reverse referrals. You know, reverse referrals are easy, easy to understand. Okay? It's, not, it, it's that you, do, you go out of your way to try to find business for them. You, you, you do things that recommend them to other people as well. Recognition is a very big deal. Now, like, like here, for example, uh, a few years ago, I was holding a meeting with, uh, um, with a bunch of my corporate clients 
and uh, to show appreciation for those who had referred me to people in the previous year, I sent uh, these vintage I sent vintage limos to pick them up at the airport and drive them in into the hotel. And you know they and guess what? You know they had their they got their pictures taken with them, and uh, you know they were very excited about it. And and other people who were there saw them uh, arrive in those. And you know, and it was recognition for doing something that I really appreciated. Okay, it didn't necessarily mean that they got that I got business out of their referrals, but I appreciated the fact that they did do the referral, and uh, uh, and it went a long way recognizing them, showing special recognition for them. Another time, I had a client of mine. This was in the trade show industry, National Housewares Manufacturers Association, uh, at least when it used to be called. Uh, National Housewares Manufacturers Association. Tom Conley called me up, said uh, he had a top 10 trade show uh, that that appeared to be okay, but he was nervous. He wasn't sure why, so he hired me to come in, and we were able to discover that, that in fact, there were some cracks in the armor that if if they had gone unchecked, uh, probably would have meant the demise of of the of this this major major trade show. And so we corrected them turned it around, made the show bigger than ever, and um, Association Management Magazine contacted me and said, hey, we'd love for you to write an article about how you turned the show around and made, and made it more successful. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I think that's a great idea. I said, but wouldn't it be better if you either interviewed Tom Connolly or you had Tom Connolly write the article? And they said, wow, that's a great idea. So what they did was they... Uh, they actually asked me, they, they interviewed me and Tom, but I insisted on, on pointing the finger to Tom. And I don't, I don't have the cover here uh, um, with me on, on the road, um, um, but actually they put Tom's picture on the cover of Association Management Magazine, and you know, he talked about how they were able to turn, turn the show around. Well, of course, he talked about how Steve Miller helped them and things like that. But Tom got, Tom got all, all the kudos, and that was totally fine with me. Uh, but that recognition, you know, it became kind of a reverse re referral because I handed him over to Association Management uh, Magazine, and he got he got all the press and the publicity. He was the superstar, and as far as I'm concerned, that's very very way cool. So here's how it looks. The uh, you know is that is that when you think in terms of you've got the value. Let's see, let's see. Okay, got the value. All right, the old two by two quadrant here. Right, got the value on the left side. You know, low value. Uh, you know, uh, low value up to um, you know high value up here, right? And then you've got the experience that we talk about: low, low value or low experience to a high experience. And if if uh, if they are um, if they're low, if the value to them is low and the experience is is low, then you are a pure commodity. Or in other words, you're a duck. Okay. If that's what they're getting, if you are providing them with high value, high value but a low experience, well, what does that mean? Well, it, it means that yeah, they like they love the value, they they love getting the high value uh, on on the basic areas of, of their expectations. But you know what? You know it means that they're still available if somebody else were to come along, deliver the same stuff, deliver the same value, but offer a better experience with them. What about companies that, that say, hey, you know, we're, you know, and they're, and they're fun, great fun to, to, to hang out with and work with, but they're a pain in the butt when it comes to the value part. You know, they, they don't, you know, keep their promises. They don't deliver on time. They have, you know, they maybe have bad quality products. Uh, and so they become a disappointment. But if you, can, if you can wrap the two together where you can deliver high value with, also with the high experience, now you've got them to where they become attached. And the beautiful beautiful part about this is that when they become attached, pardon me, let me turn that off, uh, when, when, uh, to go from attachment, attachment begets uncopyable because, because if you can get them to be personally and professionally attached to you, that is something that is very, very difficult to copy. And when you are uncopyable, you now have an unfair advantage over your competition and that's exactly what you're looking for to do now I recognize that this is this is a, a high level look at it uh, you know uh, of these things this is the what to do's 
uh, and you know, with a few examples of how to do it, it might be more difficult, uh, to, you know, to do. But but if you start to look at things like this, and you start to look at, at what can you do to create an attachment of them to you, an attachment of them to you that goes beyond just the product that you're delivering, the standard uh, service that you would be offering them, and the you know fair pricing or anything like that. Because if all you do is that and you're having trouble separating yourself from the crowd, well, you know, sorry, but you deserve it. You know, you deserve it. But you've got to step out and try to work with them to offer them something else. Okay, so i got a couple minutes left. If there are any questions, uh, happy to uh, answer those right now. Uh, one thing I will say that is, is that uh, uh, my book, um, you know, which was which obviously will go into a lot more detail on all of this stuff. The, our objective is to have the book. Uh, I pushed for a really fast publication, uh, and um, and I'm going to naturally provide a a, a super super, um, and I mean a you know the the IMTS special type of pricing for people that are going to want to want to buy the book. And it's, it's right now it's scheduled to come out in November. So you know when it gets back past uh, the showtime. Then we'll start talking about uh, availability of the book and all the all, all the stuff that goes underneath it. So anyway, so I don't see any more. I don't see any questions, uh, you know. And uh, so I'm not going to keep you on uh, any longer. Uh, as always, appreciate. Whoop! I didn't mean to do that. Uh, as always, uh, appreciate your participation. Uh, appreciate you uh, joining me today. Uh, um, always appreciate seeing you guys. And uh, we'll be back again. You know, next next month. For those of you that are the that are exhibitors, you should be getting the emails uh, sharing the um, exhibitor operations programs and the exhibitor marketing programs as well. We want to help you do a better job at, at IMTS. So, so with that, thank you, uh, um, thank you, Nicholas, for your your comment. Appreciate that very much. And thank you, thank you, Jerry, and everybody else for joining us. This is Steve Miller, better known as Kelly's dad. I'm out of here. Rochelle, do you want to say goodbye, or are we all done? I guess we're all done. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.